1: Today, we have another one of our return guests, and he's a popular guest. He's certainly popular this time of year. We tried to get him on a little bit earlier, but, you know, he prioritized, I learned that he prioritized uh, elk hunting higher than being a guest on the Ducks Unlimited podcast, and I can't blame him for that. Dr. Ray Alisoskas, research scientist with the Wildlife Research Division of Environment and Climate Change Canada. Ray, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks, Mike. It's uh, great to be back.
1: This episode has to logically begin with a recap of how that elk hunting went. I, I know whenever I first reached out to you, it may have been late October, early November, and you said that you were trying to get a—it uh, um, wasn't an elk, was it? It was a moose. I got that wrong, didn't I?
3: No, it was an elk, a cow elk that I, I got pulled on the draw, and uh, yeah, so it was a season that that uh, for, for, for cow elk, middle of october to the end and then uh, it closed and then opened up again from the 9th to the 19th or something like that i finally got one on the final day i put in i don't know 10 or 15 days of uh, of full days uh trying to get this thing so I burned up quite a bit of holiday time but uh it's a great way to do that so
1: Yeah it is it is I saw some of the photos that you were were sharing but the, they kept they they were just scenery uh and or maybe an elk off in the distance or something of that nature and it wasn't until I guess in November you said that you you finally got it because we were we were waiting until you we're, we're able to harvest your elk before we could get you on here, and finally, uh, finally, you did. So, congratulations on that.
3: Yeah, thanks. It, it was a good day because uh, a couple hours after uh, gutting that elk, I, I knocked down a whitetail too. So, but so.
1: Oh heck yeah! yeah. That that is a productive day.
3: It was a late night too, getting everything <laughs> out of the bush. But,
1: yeah. I'm sure it was. Yeah. You are joining us from uh, from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and. Uh, In the email earlier today, you indicated that it's cold. I think you said it was minus 20. So winter uh, has arrived. It was a bit of a, I think you even described it a few minutes ago as a a long fall. Uh, But a few weeks ago, things turned cold and everything's pretty well locked up there now, right?
3: Yeah, except uh, this is similar to the conversation we had a year ago, except the river stays open for for longer. But yeah, that's like all the water is pretty well hard on the the wetlands and the reservoirs and, you know, I'm I'm thinking about ice fishing now, so.
1: Yeah, it won't be long. Won't be long for that, for sure. We wanted to talk with you today. It's almost an annual uh, discussion that we have here to get your opinion or get your thoughts. I guess it's been some kind of speculation here the past couple of years about productivity of Arctic nesting geese in, for most of your career, you have been annually traveling up to the Queen Maud Gulf uh, migratory bird sanctuary there at uh, Carrick Lake where there's a uh, massive white goose colony, uh, lesser snow and Ross's geese and collecting data with your with your your colleagues on an annual basis on productivity, the size of the c- colony and a lot of your work through the years has really uh, been pivotal in helping us understand the population dynamics of of those species of waterfowl. But the past couple of years, as everyone knows, has been different. And you have been, you and all of your research partners have been unable to travel north to those colonies to collect the data that you have for so many years prior to it. So, you've been just sort of assessing what you think productivity might be based on on spring thaw and other uh, snow cover, things of that nature. Uh, and then and then the first kind of insights that we've been getting the past couple of years regarding productivity have come from some fall surveys that you and your colleagues have, uh, have been conducting. And that's one of the things that we'll talk about here today, but just give us this assessment as you began to watch the spring and summer unfold here in 2021, uh, describe what you were seeing and as you kind of look north using whatever remote sensing Imagery and data was available, and and as you were beginning to think about what might unfold, what did that look like to you?
3: Well, we hadn't uh, been up to the Arctic since uh, 2019, of course. You know, as you say, with this pandemic, uh, travel restrictions, and so on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no firsthand knowledge of what conditions were like in either the last two summers. Uh, I've, you know, you mentioned these age ratios in the fall. That's kind of what I rely on now to to get it, to understand what the bottom line is for for productivity. Things have changed over the last 30 years. uh, And so uh, it's kind of what comes out of the end of the pipe, ultimately, that matters in terms of, uh, well, certainly for hunters, but also uh, in terms of the the, the contribution and recruitment to, you know, the the birds that are going to become adults. We want to know what we're starting with right here. Uh, so things can change between the Arctic and the prairies and then on through the winter. but what we get here is pretty strongly correlated in terms of the the, the ratio of young to adults that were produced with what we used to see uh, in the Arctic at nor- uh, up north in the Arctic during banding so uh, it's the age ratio is always lower here than it is up north because the juveniles die at a higher rate disproportionately to the adults so it declines naturally but Overall, there's a strong parallelism over time between the two counts. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there are ways to look at conditions and remote sensing, but in terms of the currency of it matters to the population, it's the age ratio uh, that we see here in, Sus- in Saskatchewan especially for certain populations that re- that are representative by, of the birds that move through Saskatchewan.
1: Ray, I saw a graph and an email that you shared with the waterfowl science community a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now, where you reported the results of this fall survey that you do. We described it in pretty good detail last year where you and your your, your research partners go out and do roadside surveys and methodically look throughout the flocks to count, uh, to enumerate the number of Juvenile birds, the number of adults, and then you summarize all of that data. So we won't step through those details again methodologically. So let's just kind of skip right to the the results, what you saw this year. And, and of course, we're here in early December. A lot of folks have already been out chasing snow geese and Ross's geese, and will have their own firsthand knowledge and insight on what they're seeing relative to the uh, the, the ratio of young to adult birds. But at least within that survey region, in central Saskatchewan where you conducted. What did y'all see this year for these different uh, groups of, of geese?
3: Well, it was slightly better than last year, but still far below uh, what's required to replace you know, the number of adults that die every year, right? So uh, for example, Roskies, I think we're about 14 or 15% or sorry, the age ratio was uh, 0.14 young per adult. Okay, so uh, that's quite low. Uh, you know, one to one would be 50%. So 0.14 to one is is like, you know, I I, I would think that's about 10% young, roughly. So it's low. Uh, and and what what's required is about an age ratio of 0.2. So 0.14 is too low to replace. And that's for Ross geese that tend to always do slightly better than the other two species that, you know, I've been monitoring with uh, my colleagues. And those other two are white-fronted geese and the uh, snow geese uh, mid-continent snow geese and snow geese mid-continent snow geese are just do not seem to be able to pull out of this poor pro- productivity that they've been in since 2007 uh and with the consequence that the population is declining um you know it's it's pretty well nosediving uh i would you know venture to suggest
1: ray i have noticed that in the graphs that you share and I I want to always ask the question, why, why? Why are we seeing this decline in and snow goose production. And then it's not just the productivity that you're seeing that, that snows diving. Back when y'all were annually going up to the Arctic to those to those nesting colonies, at least the one at Carrick Lake, I'm not sure what you're seeing across some of the other colonies, but you were seeing a contraction in the size of the colonies, if I remember correctly. And I think you were also seeing a reduction in the number of breeding pairs. Do I get that right? The number of, of nesting that's, pairs?
3: That's right, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and what we saw at Carrick Lake Pretty well reflects what we're seeing in the mid, you know, what we think is going on with mid continent snow geese overall. Because it used to be, a, it was kind of like, a, you know, the dog wagging the tail, I guess, in a sense, because it, it used to be a much larger proportion of the population of the mid continent population than I think it is now. So uh, there's lots going on. It's like you have two, two or three or four cities and each of them is behaving differently in terms of the demographics, right? So the central Arctic is showing a quite a big nosedive, it looks like, um, uh, and certainly at least in 2019. We haven't been up there since that year, but some analyses we've done, it seems that uh, with the age ratio data that we can acquire from banding and the survival estimates that come out of all these different colonies, some colonies are doing better than others. For example, Baffin seems to be holding its own. Central Arctic and Carrick Lake in that area is, is nosediving. And uh, and there's some slight declines also, as I recall, in Southampton Island, uh, based on the analyses that, that have been done.
1: Well, so we'll come back to this here in a second. Uh, at least, well, I have a couple of questions here, I guess. What to what extent do you think some of these declines, and let's just say Carrick Lake, or, or maybe some of the others, is attributable to immigration, uh, birds moving? Out of those colonies into others, what kind of information do we have that would that would inform that?
3: Well, that would be banning information. So uh, you know there's banning crews, uh, you know, uh, along with uh, cooperating with Canadian Wildlife Service, Jim Leefler, Frank Baldwin, a uh, bunch of people uh, with in in that group of folks that we collaborate heavily with. Uh, and uh, there's there's people banning concurrently or had been until twenty nineteen. At, at the major uh, breeding areas for for mid-continent snow geese as well as ross geese uh so baffin island southampton and the central arctic where we study them and then uh, there's rocky rockwell who who uh, who's been studying and banning uh, snow geese concurrently with these other areas uh, down at laparouse bay farther south in the subarctic so we know that uh, as not only can we estimate survival but if if you know if Jim recaptures a bird at Baffin Island that was marked in in the Central Arctic. There are statistical methods for estimating what exactly the per capita movement rates are or the probabilities that a bird from the Central Arctic will either come back to the Central Arctic or move to Baffin or move to one of these other sort of subpopulations that are being monitored. So the more of these subpopulations you monitor, Uh, the more information you have, but then you can have information (laughs) overload as well. So we try to focus on the sort of the major, most important colonies in terms of their contribution to the overall mid-continent population. Um, Did I get to to addressing your question now, Mike? I mean, is that kind of what you're getting at?
1: I guess, you know, the other part of this, and I, I go back to a conversation we had with Rocky two years ago, when he was talking about some of the work that he's done in La Perouse Bay, and and I forget who he attributed this to, but he basically said just when we thought we've had everything figured out from a population dynamic standpoint of snow geese, snow geese changed the rules. They cheated, I believe is the way he said it. And so, what he was describing, if I remember correctly, is uh, observations of some of these snow geese Using and maybe this is just on migration, uh, on their northward migration, but I want to say that I recall him saying that there's some indication, some observations of these snow geese using inland marshes. We obviously have the low productivity estimates from the surveys that you've conducted at Carrick Lake and then uh, on the fall staging grounds, which would support, you know, sort of a demographic cause of these population declines. But could any of that immigration be occurring to these inland marsh areas that Rocky was talking about that would show up as a reduction in the population size in those colonies?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure if Rocky was referring to breeding birds or birds just during staging. Like, so, you know, there could be a fraction of the birds that, you know, might use some of the, in the spruce, uh, some of the, the fens. But it, largely, I don't think, there could be a slight increase. You know, that's, I'm not familiar with, with the work in any detail, but my guess is that it wouldn't, I mean, the, the food, the community, plant communities are totally different. And there might be the few birds that, that venture in there and, and gobble in some up some of the, the boggy uh, wetlands and so on that, that are there. But I think snow geese are pretty well co-evolved to eating what they've eaten for the last, you know, probably million years, but certainly since the Ice Age of, uh, you know, they're an open country bird, right? Um, so largely they like prairie, wet uh, prairies or wet tundra to Or you know, in the in the winter, used to be on the coastal marshes of Louisiana. They're a marsh bird with that big bill, adapted for rooting up stuff, but also for grazing. So, but that's not to say that geese don't move. I mean, that's that's a you know, sort of an an astute observation that uh, we think that some of the movement that I've talked about between these areas is motivated by by failure to nest successfully, uh, there's a paper out that we've got that shows that the probability that bo- birds leave Carrick Lake for something is much higher when in a year when when the production is poor. So like, you know, if you're a goose, you're thinking, oh, well, that didn't work out. Let's maybe we should move to a new neighborhood and, and you know, try and raising some kids again, or, you know, to put it an anthropomorphically. But, uh, and that, this this sort of uh, motivation for movement is, is related to the probability of successful nesting. So for example, at Carrick, we know it's, it's successfully production of young hasn't been happening like it was 30 years ago and the birds are leaving, the adults are leaving. So you've got this compounding of no, no new birds being produced plus adults leaving to say Baffin and possibly to the Western Arctic. Uh, and we know that from being on the ground there. Uh, unfortunately, there's no long-term studies at Baffin and, or at uh, Southampton Island. But, uh, you know, uh, with the banning, like banning is so important, not only for survival, but you get harvest rates, you can get this movement stuff uh, estimated, uh, you know, and you can estimate overall population size as well as subpopulation size in theory if, if, you know, you have the numbers. So, uh, but yeah, uh, poor nest success motivates movement in these birds. I mean, we could talk about what's causing poor nest success, too. I know, for example, in the Central Arctic, we've seen the age ratio go down, as we've discussed, and it getting reflected here on, on the prairies for both snow and Ross geese, but especially snow geese. There's something about them that they just can't cope with this, this thing that we've seen, certainly in the Central Arctic of of uh, you know climate change, or it's called phenological mismatch, when when the the... the spring thaw happens earlier and earlier the geese can't keep up for two reasons the adults probably don't have the same i mean they're on the photo period schedule right so if, if if the snow melts they were time to there was enough time for them to put on the fat protein that they need to go ahead and be in shape to try to nest if that doesn't happen they're not going to try to nest so some of those don't even you know form a nest the ones that try even those guys can probably not or Probably imp- impeded from being fully loaded up with the nutrients because of the shortening of the spring timetable. And so, you know, if you show up with half the fat that you, you normally would have 30 years ago to sit on eggs for 22 days without eating hardly at all, you're going to run out of fuel, probably abandon your nest. So the nest success has been going down. So the breeding probability goes down, the nest success goes down. Well, that's the effects on the adults. The other effect is on the goslings that do hatch if, if uh, the snowmelt uh, happens really early the plants also start emerging really early but the youngsters the timing of the peak nitrogen from those plants and the peak demands by the goslings becomes mismatched right the, so it peaks before the, the goslings can use them that's what's called this fancy phenological mismatch a timing mismatch between the plants and the goslings and and the the longer that interval is between the time that, that plants are nice and proteinaceous, and the time that goslings need them need to eat that stuff. To to when they're hitting their peak growth phase, the the longer that duration is of the mismatch, the poorer goslings grow and the poorer they survive. And we've we've demonstrated that. So so though all those things are causing this decline in the productivity of the birds. Some of it is density dependence, like just food depletion. That was the whole point of this conservation order which opens another door right there but also this it looks like this mismatch and and warming visible warming in the arctic is having some some impact on the productivity and and production of new, new geese
1: Ray, there's a couple of things to unpack. There's actually actually a lot to unpack there. If we wanted to get oh, in, yeah. get into all of it, but let me <laughs> let me see if I make sure I understand this here on the on the front end of it with regard to the timing of the spring thaw. It used to be that we would watch for a late spring, meaning that um, as an indicate early indicator of what productivity might be, because these birds have a very narrow window of time within which to arrive breed and successfully raise their goslings to begin with, right? If we were to roll back the clock 30, 40, or or 80 years, a very narrow window of time. And we would historically look for that late, for a late spring and say, okay, that's going to be an indication that the time window that they have for this breeding season is even more compressed. And we may think about uh, low productivity resulting from that.
0: You and your dog are a team.
2: the outdoors and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.
1: That situation. And, and so then, logically, we might have thought, alright, well, that earlier that spring thaw occurred, is likely to be good for these birds. But you're saying that's not the case if spring thaw is too early, right?
3: As you said, traditionally, uh, you know, earlier was better, but too early is not good. So before, when birds would, you know, the adults would fly up north and get ready to nest, Lapras Bay or Baffin or Queen Maud or wherever, uh, they get there and if they're properly loaded up with fat and protein, you know, that was good. There was sort of a, let's call it an optimal time. Okay. It was a peak time to be there. And then if, if the snow failed to melt uh, in due course and they, I mean, there's no food, right? So they're just sitting there. They're not producing, they won't nest on bare ground. They're waiting for things to open up if they get up there too early. And then uh, they're burning their fat and they're using up the protein that they brought up to make these eggs and sit. So that's, You know, there was a window that was about, uh, well, you can't see it because this is an audio podcast, I assume. But let's say there's a three-week window, okay? Well, now that window is extended forward into four or five weeks. I don't, you know, I'm I'm giving you rough numbers here. Uh, And so on the front end, so being too early is not good either. So that's why I'm saying there's an optimal time in terms of productivity. Um,
1: and that three weeks that you referenced, that's, that's relative to nesting that we're not talking about the entire breeding season or any, obviously you just want to make sure that three week and now four week is what you're talking about. That's related to when they would initiate nesting.
3: Yeah, that's sort of a formally a three window when you could start nesting, right? Like you start, you know, building a nest and drop your first egg in there. And so that's, you know, it's a day and a half between each egg and then 20, you know, it ends up being about twenty-seven day nesting period for individual bird. Or some birds start a little earlier than others, and others a little later. But still, they're very synchronous, and it's about twenty, twenty-five, six, seven, eight days of of birds that lay that first egg and then hatch their young. If that happens,
1: and so then I, I interrupted you um, to clarify that three or four week period. So then, what happens if they uh, if if that moves back too early?
3: Yeah, well, that means that the birds that used to have time, let's say, okay, so birds would arrive at Carrick Lake, let's say, on June the 10th and start nesting. Uh, well, now if they start, they show up on, say, May 15th, uh, it takes time to put on those. I mean, you you know, you need time to, to fatten up and get muscular during spring migration as you're heading north. Uh, and so if you've only got a week to do it instead of three weeks, then, right, because the time that you can nest is much earlier so that the schedule is much narrower um, than it used to be. If if the snow is melting earlier than it had before, you know, a couple of two or three weeks earlier than the average that it used to be 30 years ago.
1: And the reason that they would want to, to arrive on the breeding grounds when things are thawing and, and when things are opening up, uh, which would be earlier now, that's important because of the nutritional quality of the food and how compressed that is and its importance for the goslings, right?
3: Well, that's that's that the timing for the goslings, I think is something that's evolved over thousands and thousands of years. But the other constraint, as I said before, is if if there's no melt, they won't nest. They need open ground to nest on. They'll start dropping eggs on the snow or start resorbing them if they have to wait too long. So, so now it opens up earlier they can nest earlier but they're they're trying to nest I think before they're ready to nutritionally so now you got this peak if it's too early production's going to be low if it's too late like it used to be back in the old days in, you know that was still part of the set of rules that would govern them production would also be low but there was this middle ground this optimal time to breed that gives them enough time to store reserves but also Enough time for the goslings to grow off after hatch uh, that that governs you know how well they'll produce young on average.
1: Well, it's obviously a complex <laughs> complex <laughs> series of <laughs> events uh, that are that are both internal to the birds as well as the environment and how it's changing and how the timing of that of that spring phenology that you talked about is changing and those things interacting and are contributing to some of the productivity declines that we're seeing here the other temptation that people might think when they hear about declines in uh in snow goose colony size and, and maybe not so much productivity but just when they think about the the declines in the size of the of those breeding colonies they might be tempted to think about the conservation season and it having an effect in that regard but you and your colleagues have looked at that to ask the question of are we getting from the conservation season what we thought we what we set out to which is fundamentally a decline or a reduction in the Annual survival rate of adults, based on what we know about the population dynamics of snow geese, that's the most important thing that we were trying to take care of with the conservation season. You can tell me if I'm wrong in that regard, but just real simply, is the conservation season been? Has it been working in that regard, and is it in any way uh, causing these declines that we're seeing?
3: Well, that's a good question. I think uh, there's there's two ways to look at. Is it has it been working? One is. Uh, yeah, it's been working and that it's provided, uh, uh, you know, numeral, numerous and much expanded opportunities for hunters to, to harvest these birds, uh, but in the other sense, it hasn't worked because it has not, de- you know, driven survival rates down. Uh, the, the current declines that uh, we've chatted about in, in the overall population size are due to these declines in recruitment, it looks like. That that work you reference uh, was published in 2011, And and there was no evidence that survival had declined through increase in the conservation order, the harvest and so on that associated with the regular season plus the conservation order harvest. Um, I mean, it's true that probably over 60% of the the harvest through the year occurs now during the conservation order and 40% or less during during the quote unquote regular season. but overall, the amount of the number of birds harvested during the regular season has been declining by quite a bit. Also, uh, so so you know, it's a double-edged question. It it has been successful in that it's, it's kind of offset the the absence of birds getting killed during the regular season, increasing the harvest during the conservation order. But it has not de- induced any kind of population decline, as as uh, we've discussed. Uh, that declined in the overall population from about. 16 to 18 million birds 10 years ago or 12 years ago, to you know, six to eight million mid continent snow geese uh, as of 2019, is due to the absence of production of new birds. I mean, survival rate is as high as it's ever been at 90%, which is very high for these birds. Um, so, you know, the answer to your question is, has it been successful? Well, it depends, and it depends how you're looking at it, I guess. But in terms of a management uh, attempt to reduce the birds through harvest, Um, that has not resulted. Uh, The declines in population size are from the absence of recruitment, not from the declines in adult survival, so far anyway.
1: Ray, you mentioned that the annual survival rate is 90%. I think that's for adults, right? What's the survival rate for juveniles?
3: Yeah, It depends where they're marked. So at Baffin, I think uh, it's it's quite low. uh, uh, But on average, it's about 30%. So if you know what adult survival is and you know what juvenile survival is, and and if you want a population to remain stable, you can take those numbers and quickly figure out what you need for an age ratio to to you know at least stabilize a population or increase it or reduce it. So and so as we've chatted earlier, um, the the age ratio it, by the time the birds move through Saskatchewan isn't enough to match the the survival of adults and young um that apparently uh, you know is current you know at least the average over the last 10 or so years
1: if we would have had data if this would if this would have been a normal year and we had data from the different colonies in the mid-continent uh and maybe then out in the west and then in the east as well we would have likely seen a fair amount of variation in the age ratios the pr- productivity from those different colonies at least that's my assessment kind of on an annual basis there's some variation in right. that yeah and we don't have that data this year so we the, the the surveys that you conduct there in Saskatchewan, those, as you mentioned, correlate well with productivity estimates that y'all traditionally would have collected from Carrick Lake, from that colony. What do you know about how strong any of those estimates from your fall surveys would correlate with what we've seen in some of the other colonies? Do you have any idea on that?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, our CWS colleagues uh, you know, cover not only just Saskatchewan which we also help out with, but uh, the, the, the program is expanded east and west from Saskatchewan across the prairie, so Alberta and Manitoba. And so Manitoba uh, is largely composed of uh, birds from Baffin Island. And uh, the reports that I've had are that it, it was quite good. So Baffin did well uh, in terms of age ratio and the number of young per adult uh, out in Manitoba, which again, originating from Baffin. Um, I think. Uh, I think the I can't I don't want to guess and if I don't know I don't like to talk about
2: stuff. I understand. Uh,
3: so, but but the central Arctic not very good. And I I can't remember what, um, uh, what what happened on Wrangell and and sort of the Western Pacific flyway areas and which some of which move through Alberta on their way south each year. So, um, but I think a report should be forthcoming soon that addresses all these uh, regions across Prairie Canada.
1: They'll be generating that report, as you said, here pretty soon. But even last year, I went back and looked, and exactly as you described, um, and they, they, conduct that survey for each, well, it's for white fronts, for lesser snows, for Ross's geese, and I can't remember if Canada geese are in there. I know if Sandhill cranes are in there as well, and you can, they break this down by province within which they're collecting the data, and you can see variation across those different survey areas for each of those species. So, so there is a fair bit of variation uh, on an annual basis across these different colonies and species. So, I just wanted to add that as people are hearing us talk about a nose diving population up at Carrick Lake that's not necessarily representative of all of all the other different nesting colonies or the low production that you've kind of estimated from your survey there around Saskatoon is not necessarily representative of productivity from all of those other colonies right
3: not necessarily but you know from the Lincoln estimates that that uh, we've uh, updated to 2019 uh that I mentioned uh, I don't know a few minutes ago uh, the overall population of mid continent snows definitely is has been declining i mean it's becoming pretty clear now that uh, you know as i said about 18 million or so 18 to 20 million back in the, the 2008 2009 is just uh, between 6 and 8 million in 2019 you know so uh, after a high peak uh, and uh, amazing growth through the nineties uh, leveling out to the 2000s and then the 2010s and the 2020s it looks like uh, we're heading back to the way things were in the, in, uh, you know, in the '70s and '80s. Two million, one and a half to two million adult mid-continent snow geese.
1: That's amazing. I appreciate you providing that clarification. I, I probably um, looked over that earlier whenever we were talking, so I appreciate that. The other thing that I'll say is for the people that are listening out west, you know, the the uh, Wrangell Island snow goose population, I think uh, general consensus is and the data have supported the past few years, it has been growing rapidly, perhaps exponentially in some areas. Indi- uh, over some timeframes. And so that's, I know we're seeing the effects of that in our Western region in terms of the number of birds that are wintering in California and some of the other wintering destinations there. So Ray, let's kind of move to start wrapping this up you are, you've been doing this for a number of years. I know, and I don't think I'm letting a secret out of the bag in any way, but you're, you're getting closer to retirement. I don't know the exact date and I'm not going to ask you for an exact date. I hope it's way off into the future, but I'm, I'm, I don't think that's going to (laughs) be, that'd be the case. But I do want to kind of ask you, given, given what you have seen over the years and your involvement in the research here over the past few years, What do you see, in some of the questions that we've talked about today, what do you see as the most pressing research and science needs for Arctic nesting geese uh, in the immediate future, in the near future?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's been a long road, and I don't even know when I'm going to retire, but uh, I'm not trying to be coy. Yeah, I'm not trying to be coy. (laughs) I just honestly don't know. Um, Sooner or later, it'll happen. Yeah, I've been... You know, chasing snow geese since about nineteen well, nineteen eighty three. That's when I first uh, started my field work for the PhD down in Louisiana, Texas, Garwood Prairie, Calcasieu, you know, Prairie. Uh, great country, great food, great music, and all the rest of it. And I guess you dip your toes down there too occasionally. But yeah, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. Yep.
3: But. Uh, yeah, the Rockefeller Refuge and great people helping out with the work. And so back then I was interested mostly in the nutrition, you know, because, you know, Dave Ankeny's work showed how important nutrition was to snow geese. Some of the stuff we talked about in this in this interview, in this podcast, you know, about them having to bulk up and put the fuel on in the spring and, and so on. So I was interested in what affected that uh, as birds move through the mid-continent from the wintering grounds up to their breeding grounds. And so slowly I began to shift my focus into you know what what matters is the you know the pop we need to understand what's driving populations and there are ecological sort of uh, drivers of different parts of the demography of geese like certain things drive uh, how many geese are produced like nutrition climate and so on and then survival drives uh, you know uh, how much you know in combination with production drives the, the overall population dynamics so that's on the broad scale a continental scale but then when when you start looking at subpopulations and again you know the human analogies like Baltimore New York Chicago Detroit there's these colonies are like cities and there's movement between in and among the different colonies and some of them have their own mortality rates and and birth rates and so on so there's a lot of uh, analogous human kind of uh, comparisons that you could make and I think you know uh, this this notion of uh, of uh, you know, death and births driving everything is, is is too simple. I mean, it's true, it's important, but then the redistribution and the immigration and immigration between these areas, uh, I think, it have uh, important consequences on uh, certainly on the subpopulation, but on the overall population as well. And to the extent that some of these birds could leave the overall, what's called the metam population, uh, which is just a population of populations, basically. Um, you know, to leave them, for example, the mid continent birds might, we know there's movement among the, the major areas we've talked about that represent mid continent birds, but you mentioned Wrangell Island and Western Canadian Arctic, for example. Uh, it, you know, we could start looking at uh, trying to understand better what what contribution of mid continent birds, the immigration of mid continent birds from their former nesting areas in the central and eastern Canadian Arctic to the western Canadian Arctic in Alaska and Baffin. I mean, these these things are sort of interesting to know and, and what motivates that. And I think one of the things we've talked about is, you know, nesting success, breeding success, if it's poor birds move. So they could be going west as well as east now more than they have in the past. So uh, these birds are pretty cool because they're so, um, they're so adaptable. And, uh, you know, I, I know the harvest rate has not been crawling up no matter how hard hunter's been trying to kill these things to, to quote-unquote save the arctic uh these birds can can really withstand a lot of uh, harvest pressure it seems you know because the harvest rates are still only about three or three percent including during the conservation order uh and these birds can move they, they 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 sure can elude death it seems like i mean the inevitable is inevitable but they're doing a good job of uh you know, putting that off, let's say. So, yeah, movement, I think, is is a, an interesting, for me, personal thing to try to understand better and, and its importance in the world. Long-winded answer to your fairly straightforward question. Sorry about that.
1: No, that's okay. You know, a person that's been around and studying these geese as long as you have, we always appreciate the knowledge that you bring to, uh, the, the extensive knowledge you bring to an otherwise simple question. And so, thank you for that, Ray. This is, I, I think this is going to wrap us up for this particular episode. As I started out with, you're always a, a popular guest. People want to know uh, what we can expect, what they can expect from the snow goose flocks and Ross's geese as they as they fly down. And uh, you know, people are already out there at this time of year experiencing those and, and uh, kind of developing insights of their own. Yeah, Ray, we appreciate you spending your time with us here and glad to hear that you don't have a retirement date yet. And that means I'm going to get to work with you a little bit longer, and so I always appreciate that. So thank you so much for joining us here, Ray, and we look forward to catching up with you again.
3: Okay. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Always nice to chat with you.
1: A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Ray Alisoskas, research scientist with the Wildlife Research Division of Environment and Climate Change Canada all the way up in Saskatoon. Uh, As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the terrific job he does with these episodes, getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time spending with us. And we thank you for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org/dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sports.